Now we have the opportunity to turn to God's Word. I hope you have yours with you there at home or at least accessible on a device that you're using. The first uh, passage we're going to look at is at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. If you're using the bulletin that we uh, provided for you, we're not going to just read beginning in verse 10 of chapter, uh, verse 15 of chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 10 of chapter 2. So we're going to read Genesis 2, 10 through 15, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. That'll be our Old Testament reading, and we'll give some attention to that this morning. And we remember together, this is God's inerrant, infallible word. He gives us his word, and he promises to use his word by the ministry of his spirit for our upbuilding and encouragement. Let's now give our hearts and minds to this word. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now flip, please, with me to chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband." But he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's turn now together, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 32 through 42. At this point, Jesus is entering his final week of life, in fact, his final day here, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very weary, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we trust and depend upon you for this work this morning. Uh, There is no power in my words. The only power that we have available to us is the power of your Spirit. So we pray for his work. We look forward to what it is that he might do in and through this word. And we pray even as we focus a bit on the life of Jesus and how it's about to end and how you raise him from the dead, that you might give us the opportunity to assess our own lives. Which garden are we living in? Who is it that we are following? What is the character of our life? I pray that we become committed Jesus followers, and that your spirit will lead us to that end. In his name we pray. As I mentioned on the traditional church calendar, today marks Palm Sunday. Many refer to the next few days that follow, these next seven, as Holy Week. And Holy Week then culminates in Easter Sunday. Now, since we just finished our study of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, before we begin our next series in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to take just a little while to focus in on the life and work of Jesus. And we're going to do this in a series of twos. So this morning, we're going to think about the two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. 
The Garden of Gethsemane is where we just read Jesus was at the beginning of this very first Good Fridays. And the thing that I want us to consider this morning is how our lives are going to be inevitably characterized by the garden we are choosing to live in. And we're going to assess our lives compared to the occupants of both of those gardens, Adam in one and Jesus in the other. And I think we will see from Scripture that every one of us will be committed characteristically of living in one or, or the other of these gardens. Our lives are going to be characterized by the garden that we are living in. And I hope this will become clear as we make our way briefly through the Genesis passage and the Mark passage. And I don't want to be misunderstood because there is a war in the heart of every Christian between the flesh and the spirit. There will be times for a Christian that our lives tend to look a little bit more like the Garden of Eden fallen life than the Garden of Gethsemane. But what we want to get at this morning and what I'm praying the spirit will get at in your own heart is what characterizes your life. What garden really is it that you're living out of? So let's first look at the Garden of Eden. It is quite literally the first garden. We only read a few verses of what this garden was like, and we read that God gave this garden to the first man, Adam, as a gift. We saw that in 2.15, and he had tasks that he was charged to do by God. The previous verses that we read right before that charge tells us a little bit about what this perfect garden was going to look like. The vegetation was both beautiful and productive. The Hebrew word used for the word garden here is the word where we get our English word, paradise. This garden of Eden left unstained was luxurious, beautiful, unspoiled. Everything that Adam and eventually his wife Eve would have ever needed was given to him by God in this garden. And the only thing God said was missing was a helper. So he gave him Eve. Perfect Perfection was the context in which Adam and Eve began their lives. But then we saw the problem in chapter 3. In paradise, Adam and Eve had all they wanted, including sweet and unbroken communion with God. But we see where the problem came in. They asked the question, or at least gave room in their minds and hearts for the question to be asked. Is their creator God worthy of their trust? That's a heavy, heavy, heavy statement. And that is where the fall began. Calling into question the very character of God, this one who created them, this one who gave them perfection as a gift, And it was this question, can God be trusted, that opened up the deception in which the serpent came in and was able to take advantage of. And it was this that began the world down the road of ruin and disruption. That was the way in which Satan had his way. Can you really trust God? Did God really say Once a mere creature such as Adam and Eve put themselves in a place where they could sit in judgment of their creator God, this was the beginning of the end of paradise. Once that move was made, once God was doubted, the next sound move for any sinner then is to fill that vacuum. God is no longer around. Now we must fill that 
vacuum. And they did. It was the desire for them to be God themselves. Even how the serpent framed the temptation made God a bit player in this drama and a lying one at that. And that's key. And we have to remember the heart of this rebellion. For Adam and Eve, it was purely self-centered. It had to have been at its root God-hating rebellion. God had to be charged as a liar, and therefore God could not be trusted. This is when paradise is lost, accepting that lie as the truth. And the result, as we read in Genesis 3, were the curses that followed. Now, the cultural mandate that God had given to Adam and Eve continued. The cultural mandate to steward the earth remained, but now it will be done as a curse in the midst of thorns and thistles eating from the ground by the sweat of their brow. The cultural mandate to fill the earth, to reproduce and multiply remained, but now there will be pain involved in giving birth to children, and the relationship between husband and wife will be characterized by conflict and power struggles. But the curse of curses comes in the form of death. Life will end. God says to Adam, from dust you have come, and to dust you will return. The promised life lived in paradise has been lost, and both paradise and life has been destroyed. And then we hear that promise. They call it the first evangelism, proto-evangelion in verse 15. There will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. But something else God makes clear in that verse that doesn't get as much press usually is that there are always going to be two warring factions until Jesus comes back. The offspring of the woman will always be at war with the offspring of the serpent. And that's a dichotomy that we want to explore together this morning. God has drawn the lines. Offspring of the woman versus the offspring of the serpent. So there is the first garden, a perfect paradise, a gift from the creator to the creature. But through a selfishness and destructive God complex, the creature destroys all that God had brought to them. The creature brings it all to ruin. And that was their legacy a life of pain and sweat and toil and futility, all ending in death. That's the inheritance that Adam and Eve left every single one of us and every human being in history, a shattered world where we carry around a shattered image of God, broken and decaying. Creation groans and people die. The first garden that Adam and Eve occupied was selfish, self-centered hearts. So there's our first garden. Let's think together about the Garden of Gethsemane. The second garden is characterized by selfless service, and it's driven by an undying commitment to God. The world is in such a ruin, his image bearers have been sh so shattered that God decided to take it upon himself to initiate and become one of us. Conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, God became a dependent baby, submitting himself to this ruined and broken world, living in it and living under it in order to do what Adam had failed to do. He was born so that he might die. So while he lived and walked and ministered, he purposely gave us glimpses of what was to come. He stepped into a fallen world and its effects in order to begin the work of redeeming all of it. You'll remember from our study of Luke not long ago that everywhere Jesus went, he 
set down signposts that were pointing to what it was that he was bringing to us ultimately. Because of a fallen world, the lame couldn't walk. He healed them and they walked. Because of this fallen world, the blind couldn't see. He restored their sight and they saw. Because of this fallen world, the deaf couldn't hear. He gave them back their hearing and they heard again. Because of the fallen world, people died and Jesus restored the life to many of them. Because of the fallen world, Satan and his minions entered people and brought to those they inhabited untold suffering. Jesus confronted them and he commanded them to leave. At every point of Jesus' earthly ministry, he left behind a picture of what he had come to restore. And he was giving us a glimpse of a new and better paradise that would never be lost. And as he made his way to the cross, he experienced alienation, violence, condemnation, betrayal, injustice, imprisonment, torture. He suffered firsthand the curse of Adam. He chose God the Son, chose to live among the thorns and the thistles. This was his life as he made his way to this other garden, the Garden of Gethsemane that Mark tells us about in chapter 14. And here it's we, we see the love and service for God and others lived out by Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus shares his heart with his disciples, saying he is so sorrowful, so sad. This is such a deep grief, he says, it feels as if it might kill him, verse 34. And his deep grief was rooted in what his father was asking of him, to give his life for sinners. And in so doing, and giving that life for sinners, that meant that he was going to receive the wrath of God that these sinners deserved. The prospect of this nightmare caused him to ask his father if there was any other possible way to achieve the same purpose. Is there any way at all for reconciliation to be received, achieved between sinners and a holy God without him having to drink this cup of wrath that the father was going to hand him? Those he charged to keep watch and pray had fallen asleep. We see here glimpses of Adam and the first garden. While Jesus is tortured with the prospect of what is to come, the disciples sleep. He rebukes them to stay awake, warning them again, taken directly from Genesis 2 and 3, that like their fa father Adam, they may give in to temptation if they're not on point. This happens three times, Jesus praying, the disciples sleeping, Jesus seeking his fathers, their disciples, his disciples succumbing to the flesh. Finally, Jesus says the moment he has been dreading has arrived. It is time for him to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. God the Son, in service to his Father, and in service to those his Father has given him, chooses to submit himself to sinners. And the events that follow are what filled the day on that first Good Friday, his interrogation, his trial, his torture, his crucifixion. And then while he is hanging on the cross, being crushed and forsaken by his father, all of it lay before him as he weeps and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there are the two gardens. What happened in the Garden of Eden required what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane and everything that followed that morning. Just as the God, the Creator, determined there would be two groups in Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, it would be these two groups that would then, from that point on, fill the earth 
And I want us to think about as we end, I want us to consider these two gardens. As I mentioned in the beginning, which one characterizes you? Where is it that you call your home? Are you more a son or daughter of Adam? Or does your life, is it characterized more as you being a son or daughter of God? And here's how I want to help us think about it. I want us to briefly consider the examples, first of all, set both by Adam and Jesus. Then I want us to think about the choices that were made both by Adam and Jesus. And finally, we will end by trying to get to the heart of the matter, the very thing that drives the example and drives the choices, and that is the desires of both Adam and Jesus. So example, choices, and desires. I'm going to lay this out here and trust you and the Spirit to do the heart work necessary. First examples, let's think about it. Adam and Eve, we see, were selfish. Their choices were based on who they were and what they wanted, right? They trusted their own eyes and their own ears and their own wisdom. They saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and they took and they ate. And part of what was dangling in front of them was the prospect of being like God. And in so making that choice, they rejected God. They rejected his blessing. They rejected his shepherding. They saw, they desired, they took, and they ate. Rejecting all that God was for them, all that God had given them, and all that God had said to them. Rooted deeply in their selfishness. They served themselves only. That's the example of Adam. Jesus, on the other hand, was selfless. His focus was on serving and loving his father and those the father would give him to save. We know because we've looked at it recently, his whole life on earth was characterized by this selfless servanthood. God the son choosing to become man was an act of sacrifice that is incalculable, that happened even before he went to the cross. We can't wrap our minds around the fact that the eternal God knowing all, being everywhere always, omnipotent and all-powerful, chose to lay it all aside and become a mortal, limited, weak, dependent man. And he did this in service to his father and in service to his people. So these are two diametrically opposed characteristics of these families and two diametrically opposed examples. We see the character of both Adam and Jesus, and we see it lived out in both of their respective gardens. So just in terms of example, if someone were to look at you, if someone were to peer into your life and heart, who would you most look like? Would you be one who is driven by your selfish desire to seek your own will? Would you be one who is drawn by the beauty of your eyes and not by the beauty of God's word? What example do you seek and which example do you follow? Let's look at number two, choices. Adam and Eve chose to reject what God had said. They, cho they chose to do what he had prohibited. Now, they trusted their own intellect. They believed arrogantly that they knew more, that they knew better, that they could get better through what they saw, what was pleasing to the eye. They thought that they could get better than what was promised that they heard, words of life from their creator. When tested, they made the choice to disobey to reject God's word and reject God himself. They served themselves because ultimately they loved 
themselves. Jesus' choice was to do his Father's will. Throughout his life, most evidently here in the Garden of Gethsemane, but you'll remember too, when he was tempted in the wilderness by the serpent himself, Satan, he chose to listen and obey God's word. In every case, Jesus made the perfect choice to listen and obey. Out of his undying love for his Father, and out of his undying love and commitment to those his Father gave to him, he chose to serve his Father by saving others, regardless of the cost. So example and choices. Now, lying underneath these examples and choices is, as I said, the heart of the matter. Desires. That's what gives fuel to the other two. And it's here in what characteristically in what we characteristically desire that is the real expression of the family that we belong to. In the Garden of Eden, the desire of Adam and Eve was to move away from God. We saw that from the moment the serpent entered the garden. They didn't want him or want what he desired for them. Their desire was to please and tend to their own selfish wants. They wanted an independent life far from God. Their only desire was to serve themselves. God gave them what they wanted. He removed himself from them and then removed them from the garden. This, incidentally, is what hell is filled with. People who get eternally what they want in this life. Separation from God. Jesus, on the other hand, was always seeking communion with God. Always listening to him. Seeking out ways to serve him. Jesus was always moving toward him, always, never, ever, ever away. Even here in Gethsemane, he seeks communion with his father while he knew he would soon be forsaken and crushed by the very one he loves eternally. With his eyes, he saw what was in front of him. His heart felt the full impact of what he was facing, so much so he thought he was going to be sad to death. He begged his father that if there was another way to lead him down another path if possible. But here's the heart of those who belong to this family. Jesus wanted more what his father wanted for him than what in the moment he wanted for himself. Even though Jesus knew this meant that he was going to be forsaken and crushed by his father. Out of his love for his father, his desire was to do his father's will. And that was rooted not in the love of self, but in his eternal love for his Father. Now get this, the desire of the Father and the desire of the Son were rooted in their love for each other and their love for you if you belong to them. This has always been the case. That has always been characteristic of the triune God. This was the desire of God in the Garden of Eden. He didn't have to create man. He didn't have to create a paradise and put man there. But he did that out of love. The desires of the Son and the Father were always completely, globally, robustly other-centered. It was that way in the Garden of Eden, and it was rejected by Adam. It was that way in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it cost Jesus his life. Now make no mistake that we are all born sons and daughters of Adam. We are all selfish and self-centered people. We all want to be our own little gods. We all desire our own best. 
But the work, the miraculous work that the third person of the Trinity does when God plucks us out of that family and adopts us into his changes us completely. Our desires, which leads to our choices, which lead to our examples. He changes us miraculously from self-centered selfishness to people who become servants of a God that we love and servants of those around us. He changes us so that we are no longer seeking our own good, but we seek to sacrifice for the good of others. So if the character of our lives is that we seek to meet our own needs and we do so for our own pleasure, we must recognize that we are doing so out of a profound and lost love of self. Proof perfect that we still remain Adam's children. Proof perfect that regardless of how subtle it may seem, we continue to choose to move away from God. And we have to do that, you understand, because he will always and forever get in the way of what we need to do in order to love ourselves. But if we seek to love and serve God and others, we will find ourselves very much like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We will more and more gradually and gradually find ourselves seeking communion with God through our Savior. We'll do so in prayer, oftentimes heartbreaking, tear-stained prayers like him. We'll do so in service to him and to others. We'll do so in worship. And it will be hard and it will be painful. And it will be costly. But if Jesus walked this road, then what kind of self-centered, self-loving arrogance makes us believe that God our Father will spare us of a walk like his? Examples, choices, desires expose who your Father truly is. God, the Father of all truth, or Satan, the Father of lies. God told us in Genesis 3 that there's going to be a war going on until Jesus returns. We're either going to be warring against God or we're joining forces with the Spirit and we're going to be warring against the sin, the flesh, and the devil. The character of our lives will give us a glimpse of we, where we are going to spend forever. Are you moving away from God? Serving self, loving self, or are you moving toward God? Serving Him, loving Him, and loving others. There's one more garden that we haven't mentioned. It's the way God has brought everything full circle, and this is from the Apostle John. He describes this garden in Revelation 22, the future home of all those who've been adopted into the Father's family. Listen. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they, meaning God's people, will reign forever and ever. This is what Jesus Christ earned for his people. A forever paradise. No more threat of curses. 
but fellowship with the triune God, given the capacity to serve and love Him and others forever and ever. So let's take this week before Easter Sunday and let's assess who are we following? What garden are we living in? Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would impress upon us those of us who belong to the Lord Jesus, those of us who are former children of Adam, that you give us the opportunity and you have given us the ability to love you and others and to serve you and others, that you would remind us that this is going to come at a cost, but that you have already gone to prepare a garden for us where we will live in sweet communion with you forever and ever. I pray for those who may be listening to this who are fully ensconced in their family of Adam ways. They are lovers of self and servers of self, that you would wake them, that you would resurrect their dead hearts and give them fleshy hearts, that they would see as they continue to move away from you that that is their destiny if you do not convert them. Let them fall on their knees and give themselves to you this morning by your spirit. May your family grow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.